Can we put this on so I won't keep you here for hours? All right, shall we pray? Lord, it is good to be here. Father God, we pray against Satan, his servants, his works, and the facts. And I declare the the praises of my Savior. I thank you for trials and tribulations. I really, honestly, humbly thank you for them. And I rejoice in them. Not because they are fun. They still hurt. But it is in them that we find you as the source of all of our contentment. It is in them that we look at this world and we realize that this ain't it. You are everything. Like we sang this morning, you are everything to me. There's nothing else that can fulfill and satisfy the soul thirst that we have. Only you, Jesus. Only you. I pray that this morning you would come through your word and let us behold. Let us behold the beauty of your holiness and come to you. Let us be thirsty. Only you can give us thirst for Jesus. Oh, let us come. Let us come and drink of Jesus, the all-satisfying Redeemer, Son of God, our Savior. It is for His glory and for His beautiful name that we pray, expecting you to do mighty things this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, I just want to tell you, this week, the enemy turned up the volume. Badly. It was one of the craziest weeks I've had in, in a long, long time. Some very serious things, coupled with just busyness and work and things going wrong and, and one thing happening on, the top, on top of the other and back pain, uh, excruciating back pain for days and I thank God that I'm walking funny today um, and it's fine because self-reliance is absolutely gone. It gives you, doesn't it, in trials, it just gives you a, a realization that, okay, I don't, I don't have this. If the Lord doesn't come through here, if He doesn't show up, I'm done. I'm done. I have nothing of my own to fight all of these battles. All of these battles. But praise be to God because I read the end of the story. We win. We win. In the end, we do win. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. No matter how much it hurts, we can still fight on. We can still march on because He has conquered death, hell, the sin, sin and the grave. Aren't you happy? God is a happy God. I want to tell you this morning that in spite of everything that goes on and all the trials and tribulations and everything that we have to go through, this is a mind-bending statement. God is a happy God. For some of you, this might be some crazy concept because religion has tried to make God into this begrudging, heavenly being that is always concerned about Somebody somewhere might be having fun. I gotta crush it. That is not the God of the Scripture. The God of the Scripture is the most blessed, happy, the happiest being there is. And He desires you to be happy. The whole conversation of, oh, you gotta stop doing your will and do the will of God, meaning you have to be miserable all the time, forsake all the things that you really like so that you can be godly. That is not the teaching of the Bible. God is absolutely concerned with your happiness. He's after your happiness. He's not, he's not uh, the least surprised nor displeased with your desire to be happy. At this point, I should do what I should have done. I will do what I should have done a couple of minutes ago. The text is John 7, John 7 verses 37 through 39. If you have your Bible, please click on it. 37 through 39. <laughs> okay, you have some old school people here. 
God is a happy God, and He desires His people to be happy. He desires His people to be happy. To the point that God goes throughout a whole book of the Bible ordaining parties, one after the other, one after the other, and they are commandments. They're not suggestions. When He says you will celebrate Passover, you will celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, they are commands. And He doesn't like, just Bible 101, He does not like people to disobey His commandments. God threatens terrible things to those who will not be happy in Him. Let it sink. Let it sink in for a while. God wants His people, when He, when he commends all these celebrations, all these festivals, He wants His people to keep those festivals. Because He wants them to be joyful. He wants them not to you know, avoid parties. I, I don't have to party. You can't be happy. God doesn't want you to walk around all downcast, depressed all the time with a long face. So much that He commends you to party. And He kills people who, doesn't, people who don't, who don't uh, obey Him. Things go very wrong when people disobey God. One of the parties He commends is the Feast of the Tabernacle, which, Feast of the Tabernacles, which is the background, the historical background of the statements and claims that Jesus is going to make. The Feast of the Tabernacles. God pursues your joy. He works for your joy. He's not surprised nor displeased by your desire uh, to seek your joy. And all of us have that desire to be happy. God has put it in us. We all pursue it. I love the quote from uh, uh, Blaise Pascal when he says that all men desire to be happy without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended in different ways. The will never takes a step the least but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. End quote. God is not surprised by this. In the Bible, He commends it very seriously. He commends you to pursue His delight. Just take a look at uh, Psalm 37, verse 4. He says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalms 32, verse 11, he says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. Shout for joy. Philippians 4, 4, New Testament. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Those are just a few passages where God is expressing His desire to spread His blessedness throughout the world, to all peoples, for the joy of all nations. And this morning, He offers Himself to you as a fulfillment of this pursuit. You will find eternal, everlasting, all-fulfilling joy in Him. Jesus Christ is offering Himself to you this morning. Let's read our text. Verse 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen? Jesus is the fulfillment of your pursuit of happiness. Now, like I said, He threatens terrible things if you are not happy in Him. If you don't pursue your happiness in Him. If you don't find your happiness in Him and you keep going to the world and to whatever else 
to find your happiness. Just one example is Deuteronomy 28, 47 and 48. This is what God says. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord, not Satan, not the enemy, whom the Lord will send against you. They didn't rejoice in the Lord. They didn't serve the Lord with joy. And the Lord punished them. This is how serious the Lord takes happiness. Your happiness. In expressing His happiness, His delight, and His desire for you to be happy, one of the celebrations He ordered, He ordained, was the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, this feast was a national feast. Everybody would come to Jerusalem. All the Israelites, supposedly, would come to Jerusalem. And they would dwell in tents. They would make their tents on the streets, on the temple courts, everywhere. They would just dwell on the streets. Everybody, the city got crowded. They would sing on the streets. They would celebrate, just rejoice. It was a week-long party. It was a national party. You know, they weren't supposed to do other works, just party for the whole week. Celebrate the Lord. How did they party? They sang songs. They sang the psalms. They rejoiced in the Lord together. They thanked God for His provision, His provision. In the past, you know, the tents, they symbolized when the Lord liberated them from Egypt and they got lost in the desert for 40 years and they lived in tents. God made them live in tents. That's the idea of having all these tents on uh, the tabernacles, uh, temporary dwellings uh, on the streets. It was to symbolize that. Our God, He liberated us and we lived in tents and He provided water for us in the desert. The provision of God in the past and the provision of God in the present when they thanked God for His, for his uh, uh, provision in the harvest that had just ended. They thanked God for uh, uh, give thanksgiving to the Lord for the last harvest, for the rain that God provided, for the food that they had. And they would realize in doing all these sacrifices, all this celebration, and singing all of these psalms, chanting all these songs, uh, and all the symbolisms and, and rituals, they would realize their profound dependence on God who was their provider. God alone ultimately could provide for them. And that was the reason of the party. That was the reason of the celebration. One, um, one that guy I read, um, you know, he, he says that there was... Uh, revelry all night leading up to this moment, to the moment of the morning sacrifices. So, English is not my first language. I'm going, what's revelry? Revelry? And, and I look it up. Oh, it's a loud, noise-making party. I'm like, oh, so that's his sneaky way to say they were partying all night, celebrating the Lord. It was not debauchery. It was pure rejoicing in the Lord for all that He is. Now, this morning, you have this reason to party, to celebrate, to shout for joy. Because there, are, there is horrendous news, terrible news, terrible news. There's sin. There's the wrath of God against it. There is a shortcoming in fulfilling the Lord of God. And the wrath of God is upon us. There's tragedy out there in the world. All kinds of bad things do happen every day. But God loved us and sent His Son. This is the reason why we can celebrate. Because God sent His Son to save sinners. The Son of God left His glory, took humanity upon Himself and came to earth to live among us and live the life that I should be living. A perfect life of delight in the Lord. A perfect life of obedience, joyful obedience in the Lord. So that in His achievement, He crushes my shortcomings. And when I place my faith in Him, God looks at me and He doesn't see me. He sees the righteousness of His Son. I mean, if this isn't a reason for us to shout for joy, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. We have a reason to celebrate because our joy is not found in circumstances. 
Our ultimate joy is not found my sports team that won or how much money I made or how healthy I am. Those are all good things. Or they can be good things. We have a special way to turn good things into idols. But that's another sermon. Okay? Um, but our ultimate joy is not there. Our ultimate joy is in heaven. It's secure. No thief can steal it. Amen? Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Now, this feast had several different rituals that they would do. One of them was that the ceremony of the libation. They would pour water. Okay, they would pour down water. The priests would go every day and they would go to the, to the pool of Siloam and they would, with a, a, a golden jar, a golden pot, the priests would make a procession and grab the water, like it was about two gallons, grab the water and they would, again, with all the people, they would go back to the temple and the people, at this point, they're singing Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you shall draw water from the pool of salvation, from the well of salvation. They would be singing this song, and then they would get to the temple, and the priests would enter. They would go to the temple. The crowd was all around. They're celebrating. They're singing. They're chanting. At this point, at this point they're singing um, the, what's called the Hallel. Does it sound like Hallelujah? You know, psalms of praise. That It's terrifying to, to speak Hebrew when there's a Hebrew-speaking person in the, in the congregation. I'm just saying... Uh, you know, hallelujah, the Psalms of praise, Psalms 113 through 118, thanking the Lord and praising the Lord for all that He is. And they're singing, they enter the temple singing all those songs. The whole, the whole congregation is singing. And the priest will go. And then at the time when the priest is going to pour out the water, there is silence. You can hear a pin drop. This is the culmination. Everything has led up to it. They would go around, around the temple once, and then at this point, he'll go up there and he's going to pour the water. Everybody stops singing and they, the whole thing culminates in that. And they do that every day. On the last day of the celebration, he doesn't go around. <clears throat> the priest doesn't go around where he's going to pour the water. He doesn't go around one time, but seven times. There's great anticipation for what's going to happen as soon as they see the water being poured out. That celebration. They're praying, they're singing, they're praising. As soon as they see the water, celebration breaks out again and they celebrate their God, their provider, their king, the one who gave them the rain, the one who liberated them out of Egypt, the one who... Uh, uh, um, supplied water in the desert for them. And there's great laughter and rejoicing. And they know this is the last day. Now, there's at least six months till the next party. They know they might not see uh, a lot of people until the next celebration when they come back again together, together. <clears throat> and it's just a great national holiday. This is the, the historic, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the historical background of what is happening. This is the Feast of the Tabernacles. The dwelling. It also expresses God's desire to dwell among His people. And one day, one day, when there's no more crying, nor pain, nor tears, nor death, nor sin, we will dwell with them forever. And the Bible says that we will serve our King. Man, I long for that day. I long for that day. It is coming. That day is coming when the Feast of the Tabernacles is going to be physically fulfilled where we will see the Son of God. And not like other parties that end. This one will be forever. It will be hard partying and it will be forever. Eternal celebration with Him. Does that trip you out? I mean, does, does that hit you? Like, it blows my mind. It blows my mind to imagine that day, to imagine eternity with this level of joy, this explosion of joy, where you are as happy as you can possibly be. <clears throat> and it doesn't end. 
It just does not end. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It is coming. I just want to point out one thing that I find to be extremely, before we look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at what Jesus said, okay? I'm going to attempt to explain, unpack a little bit what he said, what he meant, and then we're going to look at the whole story again. So there there isn't really a whole lot more to do. But I I do want to point out one thing that I find to be extremely encouraging, and I want to encourage you this morning. These two chapters, 7 and 8 of, of the book of John, they are very violent chapters. There are like over 11 mentions of, of arresting and murdering Jesus. They're just plotting against him. They want to kill him. Even in the beginning of the chapter, on uh, uh, verse 2, it says that Jesus, he's not, he's not really walking around. Uh, he's laying low because uh, he knew that the national Jewish leadership wanted to kill him. Take a look at it. Let's look at it real quick. Now, the Jews, uh, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Okay? Then, but the violence builds where, you know, Jesus is making his statements. He's teaching. They don't like what he's teaching. All of the claims he's making of being uh, living water, of being the bread of life. They don't like it. They do not take him as he is offered to us in the gospel. In, uh, in verse 30, they say, uh, this, this is what verse 30 of chapter 5 says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Then you look down to verse 32, it says that the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they're trying to arrest him and kill him. Jesus is not, and this is the encouraging part, Jesus is not the least afraid of his enemies. It does not paralyze him from carrying out his mission, from obeying his Father, from proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming who he is. They did not touch him because his hour had not come yet. Now, how many of you are glad that the enemy or your trials do not have the last word of what's going to happen to you? Here, the supernatural intervention of God, we can only attribute Jesus' well-being, Jesus' physical integrity here. We can only attribute it to God's supernatural intervention, His protection, His miraculous sovereign intervention here. God is sovereign over all things. Now, you start believing this, what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty over all things, including those that hurt you. And you start noticing that, okay, the enemy or my trials, whatever is against me, they don't have the last word of what's going to happen to me. God in heaven does. He does. If there's one verse that I beg you to memorize, Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all things. You start believing this. You start walking in supernatural power. And you start doing things that to the eyes of men they might seem impossible. We start seeing needs and we start saying, you know what, it it sounds impossible, but I think we can fulfill it. I think we can do it. You see the enemy and and you're like, you know what, man, they're big, we're small, we're small. They're too big, I don't think we can take them. But then Joshua, who believes in the thing, he's like, we can take them, we can do it. Joshua and Caleb, out of 12, they believed God and how God was sovereign over all things. And their power, their strength, did not lie on how strong the army was. But God in heaven gave them strength to fight the enemy. Now, how many of you are happy that it is not the obstacles that has the last word? Remember, when you're facing adversity, trust God. 
Trust God. I'm not saying, you know what? I'm not saying go around walking like an idiot and you don't care about anything because, oh, God's going to take care of me. No, it is still a fight. It's going to hurt. Have your sunglasses because there will be black eyes. Okay? But you will win the battle. I promise you. You will win the battle if you are in Christ. Just cast yourself upon Him. Do not be anxious about anything. Cast your cares upon Jesus. This morning, I know many of you are being bothered by the cares of this world. We all have problems. And I beg you this morning to cast your cares upon Jesus. Because He can carry, He can bear your burdens. He bore the sins of the world on the cross. He can carry you through this fallen side of eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I pray that you find encouragement in, in the God who can get you out of trouble, who can carry you through. <clears throat> you know, you believe this stuff, you start seeing that, you know, if you're in front of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is right behind you, there's nowhere to go, you say, you know what, my God can part the sea. And I can go through. Then the devil will ask you, what if he doesn't? He's going to cast out. What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't part the sea? What's going to be now? What is it going to be now? But you believe God. Your answer is always, you know what? If he doesn't part the sea, he'll make me walk over the water. I'll, I'll walk on the water. And that's it. One way or another, God's got this. We have to get this in our heads. We have to get this in our heads Take courage in this. God has the last word, always, no matter how bleak the situation looks. So after these few short, short words, let's get into the text. What is it that Jesus said? What is it that He said? If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Right? If anyone, on the last day of the feast, the great day, we talked about that, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is a great invitation. This is a gospel call right there. He's crying out to everybody who is there. He's not making any distinction, social distinctions, no discrimination. Everybody who is there would hear what he's saying. He's crying out. Okay, He's saying in loud tone. And there's only one condition. You see that what he cries out starts with an if. The condition of if any man is thirst, if any man thirsts. Now, to come to Jesus, you've got to thirst. If you don't have this thirst that he is referring to, you won't come to him. Water does not sound appealing to those who are not thirsty. If you're not thirsty, you don't drink water. Now, it is true that all of us are thirsty. It is, that is true. We all have this God-shaped hole in our hearts that only God can fill. But it's also true that not all of us will recognize that. It is also true that not all of us will acknowledge that we need God. And to come to Jesus, Jesus is saying, if you, have that, if you acknowledge that, your spiritual bankruptcy, come to me. I'm, I'm not going to condemn you. I know you're jacked up. If you acknowledge that, come to me. Let Him come. And drink. There's a simple condition. Just realize you have to admit that you are spiritually bankrupt. That you need Him. You have to confess your spiritual poverty to come to Jesus. Because if you're happy in your sin, if you're content in your sin, if you're living for the world, if you don't think you have a necessity, a need for God, if you think God owes you heaven because you do good things and you never killed anybody. You're not thirsty. You don't need to come to Him. If you don't need your sin forgiven, you don't need to come to Jesus. Why would you come? That's exactly what He's offering. If you think you are fulfilled by all the junk in the world, by, by everything else, you don't need to come to Him because He's not offering anything other than Himself. And he's saying that with the background, with the backdrop of, he said at a chapter earlier, 
Verse 44, that no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. This is again confidence in his God. Okay, they cannot come to me, but I trust that my God, my God desires, he will draw them to me. And then towards the end of the chapter, verse 66 of chapter 6, he'll say, you know, this is why I said that no man can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father who sent me. Jesus is well aware of the depravity that sin has brought, of our spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus is well aware of that. Now remember the city of Corinth that was absolutely wicked and Paul wanted to go elsewhere and the Spirit said, no, don't, uh, go to Corinth because, because I have many people there. To the eyes of man, they would look at, at Corinth and they would say, this is, this, this is a wicked city. I have nothing to do with them. I don't even want to fly over that city. But God had many people there. All that God was saying was, you know what, Paul? You preach, and I worry about who's going to come. You bring it to their ears. From the ear to the heart, you know, I got it. That's all he was saying. Jesus is saying the same thing. He's making, issuing a gospel invitation. If you're thirsty, come to me. Let him come to me. But like I said, if you think you're content with Anything other than Jesus, you do not need Him. Because he, has, he is not going to offer anything other than Himself to satisfy your eternal longing. It comes with a condition of knowing, confessing your spiritual bankruptcy. And we, in our sinful state, in our fallen state, we always try to find, we have this thirst to fulfill this God-shaped hole that we have, and we look for fulfillment everywhere else but God. This is not a new thing. This is not a thing of, of 21st century. This has been going on forever. Since man fell, this has been going on. The prophet Jeremiah addressed it thousands of years ago. Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, verses, verses 12 and 13, he'll say, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. And healed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's not a new thing that we would forsake the Lord and look for our fulfillment this eternal longing that we have to fulfill eternity that God has put in our hearts, it's not a new thing. We've been looking at all the wrong places since Adam fell. And that is forsaking the Lord. The Lord's not happy with it. He wants us to be happy. Now, in, this, in these two verses in Jeremiah, God does at least two things. Okay? He calls everything, everything that claims to satisfy your thirst for Him, Everything that claims to satisfy you eternally and ultimately, he calls it broken cistern. It's a well that is broken. There's mud inside, the water, the mud comes in, uh, dirt comes in, half of the water comes out. It, it doesn't go well. And as you can well imagine, drinking muddy water uh, is a far cry from satisfying your thirst. And in our sinful state, we jump in from, in our discontentment, we jump in from muddy water to muddy water to broken cistern, from broken cistern to broken cistern, different wells. And until we find rest in Him, our souls are restless. I wish I had come up with this one. It was somebody else. But it's sure good, isn't it? Our hearts are restless until they find rest in Thee. Man, I'm joyful this morning. Praise God. I think I'm more charismatic than I, than I thought I was. Okay. And it, the other thing that he does is that Jesus is saying, you got two choices. One of them is me. I don't care whatever else you're looking your fulfillment in, you know, that's evil, that's a broken cistern. And looking for fulfillment everywhere else is evil. 
Now, another moment of Bible 101, God does not approve of evil. He does not like evil. Evil does not uh, um, dwell with or in God. He is not tempted by evil. He hates evil. Evil does not go well with God. Because of finding your fulfillment in everything else but God, God is wrathful towards humankind. It is, what we have to understand is, it's a hard saying of Jesus, but a hard saying of the Bible. We have to understand how evil it is to forsake the fountain of living waters, the most beautiful being there is, the one in whom you can find the most joy possible when you say no to Him and you look for fulfillment in food, drugs, work, money, sex, career, success, whatever it is for you, or whatever it is. Even good things that we turn into ultimate things. We at home, we, at home group some time ago, we found, we, we coined this term of uh, justification by parenting. You know, like, oh, I'm a good parent, I'm doing everything right. You know, somehow God, oh, you know, like, oh, justification by parenting, yeah. You know, because we tend... We tend, we are masters at turning good things into ultimate things, and they become bad things. They become idols. No idea where that comes from. Um, now, <laughs> it's just not in my notes, but yeah, yeah, it is scripture. I, I pray that it is scripture. I believe it is scripture. We have, in our fallen state, this desire and ability to turn what is good into bad things. We look for fulfillment everywhere else. Again, Jesus is calling Every other thing that claims to satisfy you, he's calling it broken cistern, a broken well. And he's also saying that it's very evil. When he says, my people committed two evils, one is that they forsake it, they forsook me. He's calling it evil. Evil does not go well with God. And we deserve punishment because of saying no to him. Now, we use this illustration on Friday night with the youth. You know, you're absolutely thirsty. You've been in a desert for weeks and you ran out of water days ago and you're walking and walking and walking and you all dry your bones hurt you can breathe your thrust your throat your throat is is uh, uh, all dried up and full of sand you know you have a maddening headache because you're dehydrating you can barely walk anymore your body has no fluid you, you are uh, uh, hallucinating you're seeing things and now all of a sudden god is offering you cup of fresh cold water and joyful obedience would I mean it shouldn't be much of a choice right of course I'm going to explode in joy and I'm going to drink it but religion sinful nature all of these things they, you know some will say we're talking about joyful obedience as opposed to begrudging obedience to reject God is to say you know I'll take it whatever you know yeah you're telling me to take it I'll drink it okay God is not pleased with that. So whatever else we find our contentment in, if it's not Jesus, we are in trouble. One, because it's false contentment, it won't last forever. And the other one is that because the implication is, I am saying no to the most beautiful, all-satisfying, lovely being that there is, ultimately. He is transcendent and He is invading history. He is in your life offering Himself to you and you are saying no. I'll take the broken system and I'll drink the muddy water. That's an evil. But praise be to God that some do thirst for Jesus. Some do hit the bottom of the well and they say, you know what? I don't see it. I see all this stuff. None of them can satisfy me. I have this thirst. I know that I'm bankrupt spiritually. I need God. I need this Jesus. To those, Jesus is saying, come, come to me. But Jesus, what do you mean? How, how does one come to Jesus? I mean, I'm offering Jesus here to you this morning. Jesus in Scripture is saying to you, come, if you're thirsty, come. But how do you come to Jesus? It can possibly be something physical, right? Because He is not here physically. So you can't just walk up to Him and say, okay, Jesus, here I am. It has to be something relating to uh, um, 
first to our immaterial being, to the immaterial side of our being. Jesus just made the whole thing, the issue, faith. You've got to come to me. How do you come? Believing. The issue is faith. Unless you think I'm coming up with this from my own wisdom, verse 38, it's clear. It explains how you come to Him and drink. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, to come to Jesus, you have to believe in Him. He makes faith. Coming to Him is no more nor less. Nothing more, nothing less than believing in Jesus, the Son of God. Believing in Jesus as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Believing in Jesus Christ. That is coming to Him. Now, believe. The Bible, when the Bible talks about belief, I know we talk about this all the time in this church, but we will not stop talking about this. The Bible doesn't say just have some mental, intellectual uh, knowledge of, an agreement to this knowledge of some carpenter in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It's not just a sense, okay, yeah, I think it's true. I think, yeah, he, I, yeah, he rose from the dead. I believe it. No, but he's, uh, when the Bible talks about believing, it talks about an embracing, a joyful embracing of this truth, this knowledge that, 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 knowledge that you have about this carpenter that was the Son of God, that lived perfectly, died on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God for His people, and died and came back from the grave. Forty days, oh, three days later, and walked around forty days and ate with people, appeared to more than five hundred people one time, ascended into heavens, and one day he's coming back. He's preparing a place for his people. That's a joyful embracing. That's what believing is. It's when your heart welcomes that truth, and you embrace it, and that's all you got. And you joyfully sell everything that you have. And you gather everything and you go and buy the treasure in the field that you stumbled upon. And you joyfully say, you know what? I have all this stuff and I like it, but this has no comparison to the treasure I have just found. Matthew 13, 44. This treasure that I just found, all of my riches has nothing on this. I would gladly let Everything go for this treasure. This is what the Bible means when the Bible says believe. When Jesus is saying have faith, you know, believe and come to me, that's what Jesus has said. Come and drink. Okay? That's how you come to Him. You believe. Now, when you do believe, He makes a promise. Out of Him who believes, rivers of living water will flow out of His heart. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that could have been taken in many different ways unless John the Apostle interpreted it for us. What is he talking about in rivers of living water? John says in verse 39, he's talking about the Holy Spirit that was to be given to those who believed in Him. Now, he's not saying, oh, you first believe and then you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have to take Scripture. I mean, Scripture interprets Scripture. It's amazing how you can just, you know, just compare Scripture to Scripture. You know, false doctrine, like false witnesses, they do not agree with each other. Okay? They do not agree with each other. The Scripture agrees with it. We take the teaching of the whole Scripture. You have the Spirit of God. You cannot say that... Christ is God without the Spirit of God. What he's saying, this is a prophetic statement. This is a prophetic interpretation of John here because this is a fulfillment. The Spirit being given is a fulfillment of a promise of the Old Testament that in the last days, the Spirit of God, I will pour out my Spirit, that's what God said, on the sons of men. And even your daughters will prophesy. That's a fulfillment. And that happened in Acts chapter 2. When there's a feast, everybody is there, all the Israelites are there, and the Spirit of God falls on them. Peter preaches. 3,000 people, 3,000 people uh, get converted. They come, they're added, they're, they're added to the church, they're baptized. 
the disciples start speaking in tongues, and, and they're like, oh, these guys are drunk. And then it's like, oh, no, 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 he's speaking my native language. Oh, he's not drunk. He's a fisherman from, from here. How is he speaking my native language from the dispersion, from where I was born? All of, oh, they're not babbling. They're preaching the good news in my native language with no accent. Oh, this is a supernatural empowerment of the Spirit of God. This is a gift from Jesus that He sends from heaven. This is why John says, you know, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not ascended. Jesus, towards the end of this gospel, will say, I will come, I will go, but it's good for you because if I go, I will send you the Comforter. He sends the Spirit, and the Spirit empowers His church to carry out His mission. Rivers of living water. Do you see the abundance? Rivers. It's not like a faucet. It's not dripping living water. And I, I acknowledge that many of us, many times, we cannot even say, you know what, out of me is dripping living waters because we feel empty. I get it. I get it. Scripture gets it. But you know what? Another encouragement that I have for you is that we, the response of the believer is not, oh, I've got to perform, I've got to bless those who are around me, I've got to go evangelism, right? Primarily evangelism in, in Acts 2, the fulfillment of this promise. Oh, I've got to evangelize more, I've got to perform better, I've got to be a blessing, I've got to exercise my gifts. This is all the rivers of living water, the, the, the graces and gifts and blessings of the Spirit that are bestowed upon the life of the believer, the heart of the believer. Your response is not, oh, I've got to perform better, I've got to seek those things. My brother, my sister, this is, a, this is a statement of fact. This is not a commandment. Out of him will flow, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It is going to happen. Now, to the extent that this is not happening, that you feel dry, and you feel like you're not being much of a blessing to those around you, you're not evangelizing, you're not casting light into the dark world, to the extent that you feel that that is happening, happening one thing, it may very well be a lie from the enemy accusing you. And the other thing is that you do not seek performance. You seek Him. Amen? You seek Him. Lord, I don't feel like I'm being much of a blessing here. You stated clearly in the Word that I'm going to overflow with rivers of living water. I don't even feel like I'm dripping. This means that... that First of all, I will not go through any lack of, of spiritual blessings because the Spirit of God is in me and, and He can fulfill my longest longings for all these spiritual blessings. And much more than that, I'm supposed to overflow, but it's not happening. What's happening to me, Lord? I beg you to transform, to restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Am I fake, Lord? Am I deceiving myself? Have I let my sin blind me? Is my pride putting you in opposition against me? Lord, come to my rescue. That's the response of the believer. Lord, give me a new heart. I'm, I need a new heart here. I'm bitter. I'm hard-hearted. God's people seek God for their contentment, for their happiness and joy and fulfillment. God's people seek God also, not only in Scripture, not only in prayer, but also in the community of the saints. In the church. Christ has instituted the church so that we don't have to carry our burdens all alone. Aren't you glad that you don't have to carry that thousand pound stone that fell upon you? You don't have to carry it alone. Christ through His church, can carry it with you. Aren't you glad that you don't have to rejoice all alone? I mean, doesn't it stink when your team scores a, a touchdown and you have nobody to high-five? That's sad. You know? That's what you find in a church. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We celebrate our God together. We find our fulfillment in Him. We find our contentment in Him. God's people seek God in prayer, in the Scriptures, and also in God's 
people. You don't have to rejoice nor suffer alone. You can experience the power of God in the rivers of living water flowing from one to the other as well. Like I said, the fulfillment of the promise is in Acts 2, primarily evangelism. But we know that God has bestowed through this. His Holy Spirit has bestowed gifts upon His church and does bestow gifts upon His church, to His church, as He pleases. Calls people to different offices, to different things, to have different gifts in the community. And He calls us to the one another's of the Bible to exercise all these gifts towards one another as well. You seek God in His people. You will find Him. You will find Him. Amen? His bride is beautiful. Another thing, when sometimes we talk about the church in less than respectful ways. I'll just, you know, because there's so much going on in what it's called the church out there. Please qualify what you're saying. Be careful when you talk about, about the bride of Christ. Be careful. I hate when people talk about my wife. I don't like it. How much more does Jesus, who is preparing a spotless bride, He is preparing a spotless bride for Him, and He loves her. He died for her. And His bride is beautiful. She sins. She repents. She comes back to Him. He loves her. Be careful how you talk about her. I just want to caution you. Be careful how you talk about the bride of Christ. <clears throat> Alright, so this is what Jesus said. We have drawn some principles. How do we apply this to your life? What is happening here? Why is Jesus talking about water? I mean, I can get water, you know, when he, I mean, it's a similar discourse. This is not really new in our series. It's not really new in the book of John. He has spoken to the woman at the well. He did talk about living water and fulfilling her in that, uh, in that conversation. You know, in chapter 6, you know, they were eating bread. He just provided bread. Then he claims, you know, this has much, uh, a much greater meaning than just filling your bellies, you know. So he jumps off of that, just like he did in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. The context there was water, you know. So he talks about water. The context in chapter 6 is he was providing bread to them. So he says, you know, I am the bread of life. If you're hungry, you know, if your heart is hungry, come to me. You know, he offers himself as, as uh, the bread of life. Now, in here, why is he talking about, you know, I can fulfill of your longings. He's talking about water, living water, rivers of living water. You know, we can't forget that this is that celebration where they had all those ceremonies. Now, the celebration is building up. It, it builds up to the last day. And John makes sure that he emphasizes that. Verse 37, he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, this is the great day. The feast is about to be over. All the celebration is about to be over. In the first day of the feast, for example, they had 14 uh, um, uh, bulls that would be, young bulls that would be sacrificed, and they would do it throughout the day. And then every day they would sacrifice one last. It was part of the ritual. They had the thing with the water that they would go around the sacrificial thing, and they would pour out the water. They, have, they had their leaves. The city is all beautiful with all the colorful tents and banners. You know, God is our banner. And there are leaves, leaves everywhere. They hold these dif different leaves, and they wave it in the air. They chant their songs. Oh, and, and they, there's revelry. They party loudly that all night long waiting for this culmination of the party. This is the great day. They go all together in procession. The priest gathers the water, grabs the water in that golden jar. That water, they're praying for more rain for the next harvest. They're thanking God for the rain of the last harvest that was just over. Okay, They're singing the, the, uh, the verse in Isaiah 12, 3, and they're, you know, with joy you shall you shall get water from, from draw water from the well of salvation. You know, they get out of there the pool of Siloam and, and they get out of there in procession with the priests they're holding. It's very highly ceremonial. It's a beautiful ritual. 
They're chanting the, the Psalms 113 to 118, praising God, thanking God. They recognize their bank, spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual dependency on God, their provider. They're thanking God for provision in the past, provision in the future. They recognize that God alone can provide them with everything they need. They enter the temple. They have big branches and they cover the tank where he's going to, to pour out the water. They're singing. At that moment, the priest comes up. It's probably an elevated, uh, uh, an elevated position that he has. And the priest comes up and he's going to pour the water. And at that moment, they stop chanting. They want to see the culmination of everything that we have lived in the last week. All this celebration, all this recognition of this God that provides everything that we need. For us, we depend only upon Him, and they celebrate, they proclaim that through, uh, through those rituals. The priests, now this time, they didn't go around only once, but seven times, building great anticipation. They sang longer, louder. They waved their leaves, their branches. And now, at this moment, the priest is going to pour out the water as a ceremonial libation, as, as the morning sacrifice to the Lord. At that moment, they stopped singing. There's silence. They want to see this. This is like a sports event, that emotion, that feeling you have at a sports event where you're at a stadium, there's thousands of people and, and they're cheer, cheering their team up and something incredible happens that silences thousands of people. It's a moment like that. There's silence and He's going to pour out the water. At that moment, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. His voice pierces the silence like a thunder. He breaks the silence. And what He's saying is, everything that you are saying through this sacrifice, through this celebration, I'm it! I am everything that you guys are saying. Come to me. This water that you're pouring out, I am the fulfillment of this whole thing. If any man thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What a master. Talk about perfect moment. He's also probably at an elevated a position where people can see him. He's not afraid of his enemies who want to kill him. He's saying it out loud. He's crying out. And he's proclaiming the greatest gospel call, a public call. Come to me. I am the fulfillment of everything you need. This whole celebration for the last seven days that we have been celebrating and partying and rejoicing, it's talking about me. Come to me, and I will fulfill all of your longings. I will save you. Draw out of the well of salvation with joy. Hello? It's me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God wants you to find your joy, your happiness, your fulfillment, your rest, your salvation in Him. And once again, He's extending that invitation. If you have any doubt whatsoever that you are coming to Him, if you have ever come to Him, if your heart is feeling dry, you feel like you're not even dripping living water, you don't have enough to fulfill living yourself, come to Him this morning once again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Whew. Father, I thank You for Your goodness. I thank You for Your love. I thank You that Jesus came to save sinners like me. I thank You for God has loved the world and sent His Son. Hallelujah. Praises be to Your beautiful name. We rejoice in You this morning. And we trust in You. We know that You have the last word in everything that's going to happen to us. 
we know that we can trust you because even if, if we walk towards or through the valley of the shadow of death, there you will be with us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us praise you. Let us come to you this morning. Give us thirst for Jesus, Lord. I pray all of that for our joy that you are infinitely concerned with and for your beautiful name and your glory. Let us overflow this week and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.